This is the Home Pro Success Podcast, bringing you interviews with today's home improvement leaders and trades business game changers. Tune in to get actionable insights to grow your own business. Here's your host, Corey Phillip. Hey, hey, thank you for joining me today on another episode of the Home Pro Success Show. And joining me as our guest is Nick Slavic. Nick is a painting contractor that's doing some awesome things on Instagram, and I have to say, I'm a guy that follows a lot of social media marketing. His Instagram is by far one of the best, actually it is the best contracting business social media platform that I have ever seen. So Nick doing a lot of good things out there. In this awesome conversation with Nick, we start out by talking about how he built his business competing against his own family. And that kind of goes contrary to what a lot of us do. We all usually grow up in this business working with our family and we kind of rely on them, if not learn through the family business and end up taking over going out on our own. So we cover a lot on that, the challenges and opportunities that presented for him. And then we get into the content, the kind of content he's finding on social social media and the role that Nick sees for the social media that he's doing so well with in his marketing. We talk about his images. He uses a lot of black and white images and he tells us why. Black and white images are something very unique out there. We don't see many of them. I guess I'm kind of giving away a little insight into why. And also dealing with millennials and how he retains the millennials that he employs. Because millennials, I'm a millennial, we are a difficult demographic to employ and so many contractors out there struggle with employing and keeping millennials engaged and actually getting their job done. And finally, pay versus compensation packages and what he uses to decide uh, what his people really want. Do they want more pay or do they want increased employee benefits? All this and more in this awesome episode with Nick Slavic. Let's jump into it. Nick, thanks for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks, Corey. Nick, man, I know you're doing a lot of good things out there. You've got an awesome painting business. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your business, where you're at now? Start there. Sure. So I'm a residential house painting business in New Prague, Minnesota. We spend six months of the year inside, six months of the year outside. We have just made our transition inside. We have about 15 people in the winter. We have about 22 people in the summer. Nice. You're, so you're a pretty good size operation. And one thing that really drew my attention out there with what you said about what you do is it seems like you've got your target audience really well defined. I know a lot of times when I talk to painters, they're like, well, we're a painting company. You said specifically, we're a residential painting company and six months of the year we do this, the other six months of the year you do that. Now you're in Minnesota, so obviously you have to schedule that stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't have a choice. It's either that or go out of business. But, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of contractors out there that really don't think about that stuff or plan that stuff out. So props to you for having that stuff on a set schedule like that. Now, is there more to your target customer than just residential oh, painting? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> why don't, why don't, oh, why don't you talk about that? Because I'm all about target customer. I see so many contractors out there that just basically run these ads to everybody and then they kind of say, well, why aren't my ads working, Corey? Why are my AdWords not working? My, why are my Facebook ads not working? And the big problem is, is you have to start at the very beginning and understand who you're speaking to in your ads. So who's your target customer? How did you develop that stuff? How did you kind of hone in on your target customer? Because that's crucial stuff. If you love target customers, you're going to love this. So I, my target client is a 35 to 65 year old woman who's a professional. Her and her husband or spouse or, or partner both have jobs. They live in a move up house, which in Minnesota in the suburbs is between $400,000 and $800,000. I'm trying to think they have a family and they have interest in home improvement. Okay. So you, you got them narrowed down. 
how do you speak to that audience? Because you're not going to want to run the same types of advertisements to get that audience as you would, well, if you're targeting a different audience. So talk a little bit about that. What's interesting, and then most painters don't understand that they have a women-oriented business. So 90% of my clients are women and within that range there. So not that men and women are that different when it comes to home improvement projects, but if you don't think trust is important with a woman at the head of household, you got some, you got some learning to do because these people are setting me and my 22 people loose inside their house, in their kids' bedrooms, bathrooms, living rooms, basements, and they're going away during the day. So what most painting contractors don't understand is that your marketing has to be tailored to women and it doesn't have to be colors or something like that. You just have to go where they are and where they're looking. And then number two, if you don't gain their trust, you don't stand a chance. Absolutely. Killer points right there. A, you got to go where your audience is. B, you have to gain their trust. So I'm guessing in your ad copy, I mean, do you do you consider this when you're creating your advertisements for your business? Do you consider saying different things that are going to appeal to women than if you're marketing to men? How in-depth do you go with this? So it, what's interesting is that I am not smart enough to specifically target the people who I target. It just so happens that who I am, what my business does, how I market perfectly translates into what should be my core demographic. So that's that's just a lucky happenstance. But everything that I do for advertising, I mean, I still, I still have a newspaper ad. It still drives a ton of my hiring and I still get a ton of work out of it. There's nothing more that I want to do than get rid of my newspaper ad. But every time I do, I get more work from it. So I just leave it there. But as simple as doing a different color, every one of my advertisements is heavily into black and white, black and white pictures. And it's not it's not a simple picture of a house and a logo saying, call me for work. It's always about nobody will treat your house like me. Nobody trains their people more than me. You're never going to find somebody who loves this job more than me. It has everything to do about love of the craft, love of your house, trust, but not just coming out saying, I'm the number one most trustworthy contractor in the South Metro in Minnesota. You know, The image and the words have to be simple. It has to be very strong and it has to speak to your audience. And it's sadly, it's very simple to do because what counts as a painting advertisement or a request for services is very standard. It's 20 years old on average by the way it looks and the way it asks. And it's really simple to set yourself apart in my industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Content-based ads, it seems like what you're doing. And you're also, well, you're not coming out with an advertisement per se. You're coming out with just showing the interior workings of your company and showing what you guys care about. Am I hearing you right on that? Oh, absolutely. And, and there's nothing worse to me than like that greasy sales pitch. If, if I ever think that somebody is selling to me instantly, I'm, I'm 100 miles away. Absolutely. I feel the same way. And knowing what I know about you, I know you're very strong about that. And I've basically made a point to never ask anybody for anything online. So even in my sales process, when I'm standing in somebody's house, I've never asked for a sale. I thought, you know what? If I haven't done a good enough job of gaining their trust, giving the information, answering their questions, then maybe I don't deserve the job. Or the jobs are so high priced that asking them for an instant reply is insane. You have to give them some time to talk to their spouse or significant other. So for me, it's always lay out all the information, show them how trustworthy you are. And if you can't get a job that way, it's not yours. 
That's certainly a unique approach to it. It's a little different than my approach. Obviously, I'm, you know, all on the content-based marketing and connection and trust building. I do tend to take a little bit more of a direct approach in terms of asking for sale, but obviously what you're doing is working for you at 22 employees. I mean, that's no small operation. In terms of a trades business, you are on the greater side of the scale. How did you get there? I mean, how long have you been doing this? Because we know where you're at now, but let's go back to the beginning. Where were you when you started and how did you end up here where you are now? My old man started me as slave labor when I was 10 years old in our own family business. <laughs> and I, I worked with him till I was 18, amassing a uh, theoretical college fund the entire time. And uh, I graduated high school. By that time, I was, a, I was a really proficient painter. I mean, I'd spent every weekend, evening, summer painting and got out of high school went into the army for four years, got out of the army and went to go get my college fund and the college fund wasn't there. So I was a little, little happy that uh, the Uncle Sam kicked in and helped me with college. But yeah, not a great start working from 10 to 18, you know, amassing that college fund and then having it not appear. So <laughs> <laughs> that I must say that is a little bit painful there, but that is kind of the way it goes. So that was 11 years ago, I think at this point, and you've grown it up now to 22 employees what was it like on day one? I mean, what was the biggest kind of challenge that you faced going into it? Or what, what was the biggest disconnect from everything that you thought versus what it would actually be once you actually got into business? Well, I don't know. I think I might have, I have a lot of thoughts about this. After I got done with college, I got my bachelor's degree, I got a double minor, and I tailored it to help my family business. We had to sit down with the family. And the old man told me in no uncertain terms, I sort of don't have a place for you in this company. And I had planned on working with the family business forever and growing it and expanding it. And the day I found out about that, I left my own family business. So dual thoughts. I only focused on beating and competing with my own family business in my first couple of years. So I don't know if that's really good or really bad. Like we live in a town of 7,000 people and I was competing against another Slavic painting company. So you might say that that's like the stupidest or most impossible thing. But also, I didn't think about any other painter. And my sole purpose in life was to differentiate myself from my family business because we don't share a lot of the same core values. So I almost think it was better for me. I didn't think of one other painter and I had to compete so sharply and my marketing had to be so sharp at that time that I think it was like trial by fire. I think I think I did better because I was competing against my own family business in the first couple of years. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people like that that do their best when they're competing with their back against the wall per se, when they've, you know, got a direct competitor right on them and it's like, hey, it's either I win or I lose because nobody wants to go back to crying to the family and saying, hey, my business didn't work out or I got to go get a job now. So well, I wasn't leaving my own hometown. I mean, it, this is it, you know? It was it, make or break there. So if, if my business, yeah, if my business failed in my own hometown, it's like, I got to find another hometown now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knew you. You couldn't go to the coffee shop without running into someone you knew that was going to no. say, oh, that's Nick Slavic and his business didn't work out. Yeah, the old man crushed him. You know, that wasn't going to happen. So is the family business still in business? It is not. Very interesting story. And it, it's a, there's a lot to it. But in a short, concise thing, my father is a very stern fellow who does not feel like changing. And I've tried to patch it up many times with him unsuccessfully. I bought the equipment from his business. He came to work for me as a last ditch effort of like, hey, we need to patch this up. And it was the worst two weeks of my life and not so great. And I ended up firing my old man. And it, it was very, very sad. 
And I don't, I don't mean to bring the conversation down, but it's like, no, no, no. I, I think a lot of people could relate. I mean, I know it's a challenge having family work for you. I don't have any family working for me. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I hear about it all the time. So that is a challenge. And now, you know, you've obviously, it sounds like you won the game here. At least you won the game. You were competing in against your family there and but you said you were just competing in a town of 7,000. I'm guessing your service area had to expand since then? Of course. And, you know, we're in the metro area, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. We're just on the, on an outer ring suburb. So everybody in my town, everybody in the surrounding towns, everybody drives 45 minutes one way for work. And that's not unique. I mean, some people in these big major metro areas, you know, Atlanta, you'll drive 45 minutes from one side of Atlanta to another for work. So yeah, I mean, obviously we dip into the metro and another happy coincidence is that between me and the major metro area, halfway in between is one of the largest booming, most growing counties in the entire US. So all the housing is happening basically between me and Minneapolis and St. Paul. So that's another added sort of benefit. Absolutely. You're kind of in the right location for that, which it sounds like it's working out great for your business. Yeah. I mean, I know you got a f Instagram page. I've seen it. You've got how many followers on there? It was a lot. Great question. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been a while. It's been a few months since I looked at it. But I, if I remember correctly, you were at least 2000 plus, which is a lot for a contractor or a trades business owner. Yeah. For sure. And I'm guessing I'm navigating over there right now. You're at 3440. So 3,440 followers on your Instagram page. And you've got a, yeah, right. That's a lot. It's more than anybody in the trades business that I know. That's half my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's working out quite well for you because you keep posting on there. Would you agree? Yes. And I use Instagram old school method as a tool. So everything goes through Instagram. And because they're nice enough to cross post to Facebook, I use it as sounder like if I'm going to post something, if I post it through Instagram, it goes to both. So I kind of do, you know, a dual kind of post there with every one of my things. Ah, okay. So you're, you're dual posting between your uh, Facebook and your Instagram, which certainly efficient, good to make use of that. Is there a post that stands out in your mind as being one that really has worked or really has driven business or one that people keep going back to? Because I know I'll tell you about two of them and people that have listened probably already know about these. I've got two posts that have been ran both as public posts and are now ads. One is a, you know, essentially a blog post that's been turned into an ad about the four types of screen materials available that, you know, would be commonly used in my trade. Uh, that one is from 2013 or 2014, and that thing is just like the gift that keeps on giving. It's this horribly written post. I cringe when I read it, and people just eat it up and keep reading it and keep responding to the ad. The other one is a video ad of me out on a painting project. We do the screen enclosure restorations where we rescreen, repaint, and do some things to restore structural integrity. So I'm out there on the painting project. The pool deck is covered in plastic. We have ladders and walkboards everywhere, and our painting crew's out there with our electrostatic paint sprayer, which makes a lot of noise. And this was a few years ago at this point, so probably 2015 I did this. I took my iPhone, it was a, maybe an iPhone 4 at the time, holding it in my hand, I just kind of walk around the project and talk about it. I had an app so I can switch between the camera that faces you and the camera that faces away. So I'm switching between that, talking and going back and forth, and my hand is all shaky and I've clearly got no dialogue or no experience with speaking at this point. So my voice doesn't sound good. And I think this is the absolute worst video that you could have 
everybody eats it up and no matter how good of a video I do now and now my you know my video game has stepped up I've got the handheld stabilizer I've got the external microphone I've got somebody to edit the videos nothing nothing quite comes close to that video so I've got the, these two posts that just stick out in my mind as awesome content out there on Facebook I don't really do much with Instagram because my demographic is over 45 we poke around on Instagram but they're not on there so don't do that, but it does well on Facebook. Nick, is there anything like that? Any pieces of content or things you've shared that have really made a difference that just stand out like that? Yeah. So it's kind of weird because I have a very close integration between my personal life and my professional life. I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> the values align very closely. So number one, if, if you're just going by you know, like count or view count or whatever else, it's always something with like me and my family closely associated with work. It's uh, some achievement between family and work, something like that. Something interesting where people can see that there's something beyond a painting business. But professionally, obviously, you know, you do a before and after of a, a kitchen cabinet repaint and, you know, crappy, you know, 1990s golden oak uh, to beautiful enamel and, and some gray wall paint. And that would probably be, you know, not if uh, a professional post that would get the most. And also if you do the before and after of like a historic home, I mean that people, people who aren't even into old homes can still appreciate the beauty and the craftsmanship of those. Absolutely. The before and after picks I've found work really well. Sounds like you're, uh, you're on the same boat with that. Yeah. It's instant gratification. I mean, people sit there and for 28 minutes and watch a show on HGTV just so they can see that one image and we can just hand it over to them on a platter. It's so satisfying for people. Oh, wow. So I'm guessing, let's just kind of put some numbers behind this. I'm guessing with 22 full-time employees, with what I know about painting businesses and the you know average painting size, I'm guessing that you're going through probably four to 500 projects a year. Am I on the right estimate with that? It'll be a little bit less than that. Some of our projects are getting quite large now. So yeah, I think, you know, on average, we'll probably end up doing 350, 375. Okay, that's still a sizable number there. Nothing wrong with that, obviously. And you're, you know, employing that many people. That's very good. Of those 375 people, how many of them see your content before they hire you? Almost nobody. <laughs> it's so funny. Like I have a live Facebook show every Friday on, on Facebook, obviously. And 98% of all my clients have no idea that I'm even on social media. Wow. That number absolutely almost blows my mind because you got so much good content out there and nobody is seeing it. Well, not my clients. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> I know they are, but social media is almost one of those like background check things. So if somebody, at least in my world, I've been closely following the chain of interest. Most of my people, uh, when they want something painted, they'll ask a coworker or a neighbor for a recommendation. And that's the tried and true. It, that's, it always has been and it always will be the way that most people find a contractor. The other way that they find people now is just a simple Google search. And they're looking for consistencies between those. If a name pops up more than once, and it almost seems like my social media is a way for them to kind of suss me out, to to check me out and do a background check after they've heard about me. So very few times do people find me through Facebook because they see an ad. Most of the time, people find out about me as a contractor and then they use my social media as a background check. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that's predominantly how it works. If you're not doing social media to generate leads or if you don't have time to because it's too complicated or you've been kind of ripped off by an agency or whatever, what Nick just said there is absolutely key. People use this stuff as a background check. So make sure your profiles are all filled out and you've got good content on there. So Nick, going forward, man, 
Where do you see your business going here and what kind of things you have up your sleeve for the future? It's a great question. I'm in uncharted territory. So in the painting industry, if you have 11 or more employees, you're in the top 5% of business size in the country. And you know, it's sort of like there are tons and tons of people who have way more successful businesses than me, way bigger businesses, but you have less and less people to feed off of other contractors to network with. And it's tough because even for me personally, this is really uncharted territory. I I came from a family business where there was a dad and a son. And if you had more sons, you could grow your business. If you did not have more sons, you did not grow your business. So, so okay, so so back to the beginning, that <laughs> labor, just like how you got started. That was the mentality, yeah. Yeah, and it was always like, you know, you work until your knee gives out and then your business dries up and blows away. And, and that's not really, you know, the coding science and the craft interests me just as much as entrepreneurship. And I get just as much kick out of fostering young people creating good jobs, creating a happy workplace, enjoyment of work as I do the craft of actually fine finishing. So honestly, I've told all my employees and everybody else that, you know, we are going to continue to strive to do world-class work. And the second we do not do that, I will see if I can correct it. If I can't correct it, that's the size of the business we're going to grow at. So I'm right at the stage now, and you probably know this too, that I need to add a layer of overhead, production manager and sales. And I'm tiptoeing into it. And we're going to find out if I can continue this, the kind of business I have now with adding that stuff in. So at 22 employees, based on what you just said there, you are the head of production and sales. <laughs> I'm kind of everything. You're and the kind of everything. <laughs> so you, you've got your plateful. Now, I'm guessing among the 22 employees, you have to have some type of responsibility in there. You have to have essentially a foreman or a crew leader, something to that effect. Am I correct in that? Because if not, I think you're running yourself ragged. Yeah. So you'll appreciate this. My business is about as simple as a business can get. And I have, through the scientific process, sort of honed it down to this business takes not that much of my time to run. So I'm reaping a lot of reward from not a lot of input right now. Well, you must have some good people. We'll get to that in a second. That's the basis of it, but they do take a lot of my effort. What I found is you can't get good people and people who don't need anything from you. So, but no, I, what I basically do is have, you know, between five and eight different crews And we sort of just divide the responsibilities where I let all the small little things get decided by people in the field because I found good people that I know I can trust. And they're not always going to have the answers, but they're good people. And they will always make the right choice by the client. Whoa. Hey there. Real quick, if you're enjoying this podcast, do me a quick favor and head on over to the rating section of your podcast player. Leave a star rating and drop a comment. It's your feedback that gets me amped up for this podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So how did you find these good people? Because I know a lot of people out there are struggling with finding the good people. There's a labor shortage. We're all familiar with it. We've all had to deal with it. How do you find them? How do you keep them? How do you keep 22 people on staff? Because to anybody that's ran a trades business, we know that 22 people is a lot of people. It's a lot to manage. How do you keep them and how do you keep them focused? And how do you keep the projects completed to your standards and quality? So number one, I do not look for painters. I do not look for tradespeople. You you might get a kick out of this. My my ads, when I put an ad out on Facebook or something, all it says, looking for decent human beings for my company. I love my job than anybody else. I'll teach you to love yours. You make the cut your family. And that does not speak to 20-year experience painters, which I'm not really interested in. I would certainly take them, but they're scary humans. So at this point, you've ran this ad. 
do they know the company that they're contacting or is this totally a blind ad with no company information behind it? Nope. I mean, obviously my company information will be there, but again, you put a really, really beautiful image of something that appeals to humans, not just painters. You know, what I do not do is put up the thing that says you must be able to lift 50 pounds. You must have a driver's license, must have three years of experience, must have experience with airless. And that speaks to a certain demographic of, of tradespeople that I'm not interested in. So I'm looking for decent human beings because as you know, we can't take good craftspeople and make good people out of them. We have to start with good people. There's no trades business that can turn a horrible human being into a good human being, all the while making them into a craftsman. So I did some first principle reasoning saying, why do I keep looking for these experienced painters? I don't like hanging around with them. I would not invite them to my house. Why am I building a business and asking for people's trust based on that? So why not just find good people? You have to train them anyway. I mean, everybody complains that even when you find an experienced tradesperson, they got bad habits, you got to retrain them. So what are we doing with these people? Why not just find good people who are happy? They train a lot easier. They're happy to be around. You look forward to seeing them every day. The only downside <laughs> is that my whole company is made up of millennials. They need constant interaction. So if you think you're going to hire 22 millennials, teach them how to paint for a month and set them loose and never check in with them again, that's a flaming ball of disaster. All right, let, let's hold right there because we're going to come back to this. But first, I want to hear about the picture that you're putting in your ad because you said you're not including a picture that would appeal to painters. What are you putting in the picture? The last one that I put out was either a super stylized image of just a couple of apprentices and me sitting under a tree eating lunch by a historic home. And nothing about it speaks painting, really. It looks like just a couple of happy people sitting under a tree. The other one that I did was the upper portion of a super old historic home that we restored. And it's just got a beautiful sky behind it. It's just got, it's an interesting image of a house where it doesn't show you the whole house. It's just the top half, something interesting. And it just stops people for a minute from scrolling. It's just something a little bit different. So, and again, black and white. Uh, if I have a choice, if I have a pictures of, of a whole bunch of my apprentices working, it's always in black and white. It's just something a little different. All right. So that's, that's your own little twist. You're a little different. Maybe your talk trigger of sorts. If you've kind of read any of my content, you know, I've uh, published a lot about talk triggers, little different things that you can do to kind of get the kind of stand out and get some attention in there. And now let's go back to where we were on the millennial subject. You're it's well, it sounds like you're hiring all millennials or you basically said that everyone that's working for you is a millennial. What do you do day one when you've got a millennial working for you? Oh, you go shoulder to shoulder with them and you have to have intense, consistent human interaction. It, this is not one of those factory jobs where, you know, the baby boomers got a job, they got set loose on the factory floor and everybody looked down their nose at them and they weren't felt welcome. You basically need to take them in like a child and, you know, walk them through the step, make them feel at home. The reason they came to me for this job is because they felt a little inspired by somebody who really loved their job and they want more of that now. So then you have to supply that to them. So number one, either I do intense interpersonal interaction with them, or I couple them with one of my craftspeople who knows what they're doing. And they're basically, you know, a father and a son, father, daughter team, you know, mother, son team for a while, and they feel comfortable. It's a very loving, warm environment for everybody. And then you have to constantly interact. So I circulate around my crews and I have lunch with them. We have a traveling open door policy. I work with them in the field for a half day to a full day, shoulder to shoulder. 
and I do quarterly reviews where we use you know the core values of my company to rate them and we set goals for them constantly and we check in on those goals. So it takes a lot. I mean, basically, my life as a business owner right now is devoted to retention of these people. Absolutely. It needs to be. That's the only way you're going to grow and the only way you're going to keep employees. Do you do anything to foster the relationships? Obviously, you know, I, I guess I should say outside of work. Do you do any type of team building activities, any type of company outings? What does that type of stuff look like? Because I, I get it that you're in the field and you're hands on with them and they're partnered with somebody as, I guess, kind of like a mentor. What else are you doing around there? What, fill in the dots here. I mean, kind of give us everything because this is some deep stuff and this is stuff that's working for you. Whereas a lot of people out there are saying, let's not hire millennials. Millennials suck. I hired one and all he did was stand around on his damn phone all day. I know I've said that and I'm a millennial. So, Yeah, as am I. And, you know, there's a difference between a decent human being millennial and just your average, you know, every generation has not so great people in it. And we have to suss them out. And I don't believe that in a 22 year time span in between generations that people biologically change that much. So every generation thinks the next generation is horribly different and is going to burn the earth down. And magically, it doesn't happen. So, you know, we just have to find we know people are good. You just have to find the good people. But so what everybody asks is like, you know, you must have barbecues, you must have trust building events and things like that. And it's like, you know, those are fine. But what they really want is the professional stuff. So what I try to do is is do a lot of work related things. We do purely outside of work stuff. But what we all have to understand about millennials is that they will get a job and they understand that they're going to devote themselves to eight hours a day. But beyond that, a lot of my people just say, listen, I'm going to give you my life for eight hours a day then that's it. Like I'm, I have this job so I can supply my life with money and experiences to do the things I really love or, or things that also interest me. And you need to appreciate that. So what I do is we often do a breakfast together, like professional breakfast where we get together. It's a very personal setting, but we also do it we squeeze in a little bit of production work and training and things like that. And those are the little things here and there. You know, I try not to get my people together too much on the weekends and evenings. It'll be more of like, hey, we restored this restaurant downtown. They know us well. Friday morning before work, we're all just going to meet there for an hour. And you guys can ask me anything you've ever wanted to ask about painting or the business or whatever else. And they get a real kick out of that because they're punched in too. <laughs> okay. I see. I see. All right. So you're not doing so much on the out after hours stuff. You're keeping it all internal and just kind of doing team building stuff well throughout the operation, which is good stuff. Now, well, let's talk about kind of compensation and pay and benefits. That's something else that comes up a lot. How do you structure your pay to well align with your business goals here? What are you doing in terms of compensation? Because one of the things you just said was that millennials are really just getting the paycheck so they can fund their life outside of work. How do you feel about providing benefits? Would you rather provide benefits and cut down on the you know bottom line number on the paycheck? Would you rather maximize that number on the paycheck? Where do you stand there? What does what your compensation structure look like? If you can share that stuff. Oh, absolutely. And this is going to be super unsatisfying, but I, I let them dictate it. So when the day that they're hired, the last two things that I ask them in the interview is when can you start and what do you want to be paid? And universally, they undervalue themselves. 
So I pay them whatever they think they're worth. And then uh, if they're worth much more than that, I quickly, you know, equalize the pay to what the people are my crew. And with benefits, I just asked them. We did a survey this last year. And uh, with our quarterly reviews, I asked everybody, hey, I can give you guys anything you want, but it's got to come in the form of a package. You know, like if you offer benefits to everybody, they'll say, yes, I will take those plus my pay. And then you will tell them that, well, you can have it as part of your pay as this. And universally, everybody says, oh, no, 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 no. I'll just take pay. Because everybody's young, you know, people don't need a lot of the the benefits yet. So honestly, they would all like it, but none of them, if they choose pay or that, they'll always choose pay. So it makes it easy on them. I have to say that is an incredibly simple solution to a very complicated problem because I've asked this question now to a few other people and a few other recordings and you know, I've never really had a straight answer. They're kind of like, well, you know, you kind of have to figure out if your people will be motivated by this and where you're at in your place in business. But here's a real simple solution. Let's send a survey, tell her or not even send the survey, hand it out in the morning, you know, kind of cast the ballot type of thing, get a feel for it or not even get a feel, get the actual results. What do the people on your staff want and let them know that they're determining what they get and give them that or don't give them that. And at the very least, or not at the very least, no matter what happens, no matter what the outcome is, is that's not held against you. That's not your personal decision. That was a collective decision by everyone else. Yeah. And if, and if universally everybody said, and, and, you know, I love science, I love data. I love the scientific process. I love control groups. I love test groups. So when you send out the survey, you know, you, you have to do little thought experiments. Like if you could have any benefit you want and, and it didn't matter how much it cost, what would you want? And then you get to the true, what do you want? And then you start, you know, narrowing it down. What would you give up to have that benefit? And then magically they don't become so important. But right now, if universally everybody in my company said they want education benefits and they would take a portion of their pay, I would have a college fund for my people right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people would say that they wanted that until they absolutely or actually realized that that was going to be, you know, subject to other compensation or that it would be netted out of their total compensation, which if you don't ask and present it in that manner, nobody realizes it. They just look at you as well. He didn't offer it and he doesn't want he doesn't care about us or isn't going to give it to us. Yep. And just like how I, I let them start their own or set their own starting pay. People make pretty good decisions based on their own. And, and as business owners, we love to, oh, the psychology, we're looking at facial tics, we're looking at what they wear. Or you could just ask them and they undervalue themselves. You know, it's yeah. just like it's that simple. <laughs> Yeah, simple wins, simple wins. I am all about simple. I, I you know, I'm sure you know this, but in business there's so many decisions, or not even decisions, but processes, procedures, activities, decisions that get overcomplicated. And I will say a lot of those come in the form of litig or not litigation, but legal, accounting, and then also marketing. You know, so so many of these professional areas, they try to make things more complicated than they really are, need to be, because they rely on while well, selling you their services when, you know, when you boil it down, just a few simple things win. And for deciding compensation and, you know, kind of answering the benefits question, your simple solution of just ask them and, you know, put it out there in a survey type of thing, that's a huge win. And I, well, I don't sense, but I know that a survey like this will be going around my company, Gulf Coast Aluminum, in the next few days. And, and you know, what's interesting is that like we all have, we all build a business based on our personality type. And for me, I love building a engineering marvel where it's a maze and there's only one way through the maze. And if you set it up right, if you put a lot of thought into it, it takes no effort or input to run. I know of another uh, contractor in their business. They have the most magical, wonderful, super productive piece rate pay system. 
And it is algorithms, it's geometry, it's it's just the most complicated thing. It but it pays everybody super accurately and it incentivizes extra production. And it's and it's great, except that the, the process is so complicated, there is a full-time person in the company just to administer the payroll for that. So we can process and system ourselves into oblivion with some of these things. And it gets so complicated, pretty soon nobody understands it and it loses its power. Absolutely. I agree with you 150% there. <laughs> I mean, I've seen that. And I guess another example that I would kind of make of this is our sales commission structure. A lot of companies say, you know, do it on gross profit so that you don't have to worry about, you know, people undervaluing your projects. But when you consider the time and the kind of argument and headache that goes into allocating gross profit and figuring that out, and then the inevitable argument that you will have with salespeople of, well, you know, the project shouldn't have cost this much. It's not my fault that you guys use this much material. It really could have been done with this. You have to have somebody that's full-time to administer this commission-based pay, which is going to cost more than if you just said, all right, we're paying five or 10% of total revenue. Yeah. And you lose all the benefit that that system gains for you then. Exactly. Exactly. By, by doing that. So, you know, and then you've kind of got this whole animosity among salesperson and sales manager, which at the time we were doing it, I was the active sales manager. You know, and then I had to have somebody on staff to administrate this and calculate it and do all the fine stuff with it. And then somebody would argue and I'd have to kind of play liaison. And it was just, it was a total headache. So while that sounded good in theory and some sales and marketing guru thinks that that works great and it might in some organizations, I found that a flat, you know, flat commission based on the project type right off the revenue is best Ultimately, you know, yes, sometimes the projects do get underbid a little bit, but then likewise, there are some that are overbid. So we make up for it on that end. And we we do have stringent standards and specifications for what the projects need to be bid at. So if something is, you know, radically underbid by a thousand dollars or more, you know, then we'll pull that aside and, you know, talk to our salesperson about that. And we also have in the service agreements or not in the service agreements, but in the estimates and like a subsequent service agreements, bids are subject to acceptance by management or something to that effect. So that way, if something does get grossly underbid, we do have an out in it. But bottom line, a simple system, simple commission structure wins. And Nick, it sounds like obviously you've kind of experienced that with what you're doing in your business. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no way you can you can run as many people as I do, you know, if you if you don't have these systems just super simplified. And there's gates and there's little pathways that people can't but follow them. So super simple. Absolutely. So on that note, Nick, we are nearly running out of time here. But one thing I always like to ask, going back to day one, what is one thing that's worked for you and you would just keep doing and you'd suggest that anyone else does the same? Because if you started a business all over again, painting or any trade, what would you do? How would you do it? What would you what's the one thing that has worked? And it's like this is the kind of golden rule of thumb. What do you got oh, up your sleeve? Oh man, super unsatisfying again because we all know it, but nobody does it. It's just know your numbers. I mean, if you started collecting data from day one, you don't have to do anything different than just account for each project. How much time, how much materials. Collect data on it so your data set is super large so you can look back and mine it later. Like it may not be immediately useful to like a one person trades company because it is what it is, but my God. And when you're making decisions later on, should I hire somebody? Should I hire five people? Should I expand to a new location? Then you already have the data instead of saying, okay, now I need data. Now I have to collect it. So unsatisfying, but I would say 
yeah, collect data and understand that we all create businesses based on our own personalities. So when you see somebody else's business and it's super complicated and it has a whole bunch of weird processes and systems, that doesn't mean you have to do it. You have to do a whole bunch of stuff and figure out what fits your personality because then you're going to be the train on the tracks. You're going to really just hit your stride. Gotcha. And that's all makes good sense. Couldn't agree with it anymore. Nick, uh, why don't you tell our listeners how they can connect with you if they want to hear more from you or ask you any questions? Because I know we covered all kinds of stuff in here, all great stuff, great tips, great insight from you. Nick, how can people get in touch with you? Facebook, Instagram, just look up Nick Slavic and there'll be a whole bunch of ways to contact me. All right. So Facebook, Instagram, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so you can get in touch with Nick if you have anything you know, to contact him about. I know Nick does tons of stuff out there. He's got more content than I can look at in, God, in 15 or 20 minutes. There's so much stuff out there, so much good stuff, particularly if you're a painter in the painting trade. Nick, so much good stuff out there. Nick, thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. You've reached the end of another episode of the Home Pro Success Podcast. Connect with us and join our collaborative Facebook group at homeprosuccess.com.